Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. To support our podcast, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Our guest today is Rabbi Elazar Grossman. Rabbi Grossman is a native of Brooklyn, New York. He now lives in Huntington, Long Island, New York. He attended the Rabbinical Seminary of America, Yeshiva Chofetz Chaim of Queens, from 1995 to 2011. Uh, Rabbi Grossman believes that Torah study is the key to unlocking our potential in every area. And he studied and taught in many cities from San Diego to Fort Worth to Miami. And Rabbi Grossman continues to pursue his mission of bringing the joy of in-depth Torah study to the broader Jewish community. Wow, I like that. Well, hello, Rabbi Grossman. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's really an honor. Really looking forward to uh, speaking with you and asking you some questions. Would you mind starting by just telling us a little bit more about yourself and how you began your journey in education? Yeah, I mean, my early history is not very unusual. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in the neighborhood of called Flatbush, uh, at least what the Jews call Flatbush. I think the map called it Midwood. Um, <laughs> I went to Yeshiva. Um, I guess the most notable event was that the Chafetz Chaim Yeshiva, what we refer to as the Rabbinical Seminary of America, which is a legal name, they opened a branch, a high school in my neighborhood, not far from where, where my parents live. And my older brother, was the founding member of their class. Now, why my parents chose to send my brother to the startup school when there were so many other schools in Brooklyn, I'm not really sure. I remember the conversations that happened when he was choosing a school. I know that they offered him, I think, you know, he, he had uh, exceptional potential. They offered him some personal attention, which he did get. And I guess my parents felt that this yeshiva would, there was something about what they were hearing that spoke to them. And they sent all me and my three brothers all went to that yeshiva. Now, this yeshiva, I guess every yeshiva is unique, but um, this yeshiva has a very definite approach, which they're very clear about articulating. And actually, the most fundamental aspect of their approach is how clear they are about defining themselves, defining the message in a very uh, clear and specific terms. Um, It's called the Chafas Chaim Yeshiva because it was founded by a great nephew in Chafetz Chaim about uh, 80 plus years ago, but basically it's considered a a direct offshoot of the Slavaki Yeshiva, one of the most famous yeshivas in pre-war Europe and was the Muster Yeshiva. Wow. Which means they had a particular approach to character development and you know, some of the most famous names in Jewish rabbinic leadership after World War II came from the Slavaki Yeshiva, like Rabbi Aaron Cutler, the founder of Lakewood Yeshiva, Right. Jakob Kamenetsky, um, and many others. So, you know, we had this whole, uh, you know, you can go to a yeshiva, you can get a Jewish education, you can study Torah, but I guess you can think of it as the trees or the forest. You can learn a lot of things, but you can also, uh, you know, receive the bigger picture, and that's what we got. Now, of course, I didn't know this entering into ninth grade, um, but after looking back for many years, I feel like the decision that, well, first of the yeshiva to open up a branch in my neighborhood and my parents to send us there 
whatever people knew about at the time, you know, I don't think we, you know, I would, I, I certainly didn't realize how it would affect my trajectory. And this is something that was, again, very important in what I was taught, that Torah education is not generic. There's no such thing as an abstract Torah education. Unlike other subjects, you could say, well, I studied math. It might be important to know what school I went to, but ultimately it doesn't really matter if I walked away knowing that. It doesn't really matter how I got there. Right. Whereas with the Torah, it's never like that. You come from a specific place, from a specific tradition, whether it's Hasidic or Sephardic. Or, uh, you know, these are, we believe there's multiple authentic traditions, but every tradition has to be rooted in something that traces itself all the way back. And I believe that the Yeshiva was excellent at articulating that. And um, you know, more specifically, and the Roshiba always said this so clearly, it's amazing, but he, he said, you know, after the, the many, many years that I spent there, he would always say, we talk about three things in the yeshiva. Um, the three things were, he called it, Eon, Musar, and Harbatsas Torah. And Eon means in-depth study, which means really focusing on intellectual understanding of what you're learning, not about how much material you master, but on how well you can comprehend it, uh, which is kind of abstract, and it takes a while until that idea sinks in, but you're not measuring pages or chapters, but you're really measuring quality, number one. And number two is most of the whole approach, the idea of a focus on character development. It's an integral part of Torah and a subject of itself, which is a subject or the subject that's primary and what you study and how that creates a lifelong approach. Uh, and the third thing is Harbatsas Torah, which means sharing, sharing the Torah, that it's uh, a natural progression from studying to teaching, that you study and then you go out and teach. It's not a career choice. It's not something you might want to do, but it's the automatic follow-up to your study. And those three things, you know, it's, it's so simple to say over, but it really defines everything that I learned for that you know, decade plus that I spent at the yeshiva. That's my, uh, uh, you know, that's the summary of, I think, where I come from in terms of Torah education. Wow. Uh, I really like a a few things that you mentioned, Um, and I'm wondering how we can do a better job, in particular, the study of Musser and Midot character development. How do you think we as educators can do a better job really modeling that and teaching that to our students. So this is also a subject that Droshiva addressed directly many times. And I'm thinking of a particular lecture that I heard, uh, I think it was from the 1970s, uh, might even have been before I was born. Uh, I was born in the later 70s. Um, but he gave a lecture to educators who were not his students. They were educators, Jewish educators, it sounded like from other places, and it was about Muslim education, and he spoke about really the challenge of why it's difficult, and he explained it very clearly, and he said, in his view, the primary problem, or one of the primary problems in Muslim education, which is both, I guess, a contemporary problem, but really a sort of timeless problem, is that if you look at the introduction to the book of the Seal Sharm, the Path of the Just, which is considered right. the classic text of Musa, and he says right there in the introduction that this book isn't here to teach you things that you don't know because you may read it and discover very few new insights. But the point of the book is to help you 
reflect and internalize things that you already know. And he says that's really the key. This is timeless. This is written in the 1700s, but it could be written at any time because he says it's really one of the main attacks of the Yitzharah is to get us not to study Muslim. And the way he does that is by saying, mm. nothing to see here, just move on. You know this already. Mm, so when the author yeah. says, you're going to read things that you already know, he's not just telling you something that, you know, in the 1700s might have been true, but he's telling you something that's in, innate. You know, the Muslim, it disguises itself or it gets misrepresented as sort of things that are obvious and don't need to be studied. And he says, if anything, if you know, if I read it correctly, I think he even implies that because they're so obvious, they need much more study. And the he said this very clearly. He said, and uh, he would quote another great Moser teacher of Shlomo I think said a similar thing that it's what's really missing is the sophisticated understanding and the idea that Moser is more than just being a good person because, you know, being we all believe in that already. There is a little, very little to teach. And if it's just that as educators, we'll try to encourage good character, then what are we really offering? Right. Um, you know, so the idea that this really is a subject that has to be studied, and in this lecture that I'm, I was describing to you, he goes through this and he says, you know, I didn't think, you know, my students were afraid I wouldn't have an audience tonight because who really wants to hear about this? There's nothing interesting about this. There's nothing to talk about. And then he goes on to show he says, let me show you how a Musar educator will teach the following sentences in Chumash and how a non-Musar teacher, and he says, you know, very I don't mean to offend anyone, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but he says, you know, if you don't take the Musar approach, and he uses a very simple example, I'll tell you the example he uses. He says, uh, the fourth part of the Torah in Vayera, when Abraham encounters some strangers and he invites them into his house as guests, and Abraham ran to the cattle by four words in Hebrew, and he says, a typical teacher will want to translate the words with the students, and you know, bakar means cattle, and rutz means run, and make sure they understand the language. And yeah, we have a lot of ground to cover, he says, so we got to move on, and that's it. But a Muslim teacher will stop and talk to the students, and will ask certain questions. Say, who was Abraham? He was an old man. He was 99 years old. He wasn't well. He had just had a circumcision. Right. He was very distinguished and wealthy, and he had lots of servants at his disposal, and he could have asked any one of his servants to take care of the guests, and they would have done it more quickly, probably, and more efficiently. And why is this elderly sick man running to take care of the, make, you know, prepare the food himself? And there's only one answer. The answer is that physically, they'll get the food on the table faster for a younger person, but the respect that he can demonstrate to his guests by doing it personally, that intangible will be greater if he does it himself. And he says, isn't that a completely different approach to chesed? Because it's not just that you're feeding a hungry stomach, but you're demonstrating respect for the human being. And he says, it's such a simple idea, but if you don't stop to think about it, and when you hear it, you say, oh, you know, and that's really the point of this lecture is these are all ideas that, you know, no one would deny this. And once you hear it, you say, of course, you know, of course. and it's very simple. And he said, what if, you know, if you're gonna, I'm going to elaborate a little, but I think his point was the student might come home and you could just imagine the parents saying, what did you learn today? Well, we learned four words. Abraham ran to the cattle. <laughs> well, we talked about, he ran to the cattle. And, you know, what did you learn? You didn't, you didn't learn anything. And, you know, nice. the student might be, have a hard time. But he says, this, but this is really, it's both a, I guess, a contemporary problem, but it's really an age old problem that, there is a 
body of wisdom, but it doesn't look like a body of wisdom. It looks simple, and when you hear it, it sounds simple, and it's very hard. He said that his own students used to give him the same hard time. He said he would get up and teach them what's the right idea, and it would be either, you know, uh, I remember hearing this from one of my teachers who was also a student, you know, kind of an intermediate generation. Um, he would say, yeah, when we were students in Yeshiva, our approach was whatever we're being taught is either obvious or it's wrong. He meant that as, you know, that's the right way to learn, really. That's a whole other point about education, that it has to be interactive. And the teacher is teaching you something that you hear and you say, oh, okay, if you say so, then well, well, you didn't really learn anything. You have to say, well, you know, if I didn't know that beforehand, why should I accept it now? So they took the approach that whatever they were being taught was either obvious or wrong, but it becomes very difficult in teaching Muslim because, you know, what are you going to tell people if they don't know? That you should be kind people? Well, that's kind of obvious. Um, You should be honest? Well, that's kind of obvious. If you tell them something that they never heard of before, chances are it's going to be something pretty strange because, you know, nobody thinks, I mean, all the basic ideas are are pretty much universal. You know, love your neighbor and uh, practice justice. So you have to find this kind of space where and what he said was he used to do, he said, you know, I finally, I just because of this problem, he said, I would give the students the source material in advance, that they could look at it. And then I would get up and give the lecture. I'd say, well, you didn't know what I was going to say before I said it. So now that you, you can't tell me now that I'm not telling you anything. And he said, but he, he, you know, he was making a point there that these ideas are subtle and, and you know, it's very hard to... Um, Present it as a body of wisdom. So sometimes that's the solution. The solution is, look at this midrash, look at this Rashi. Do you see anything there? Now mm-hmm. let me talk about it for 15 minutes. You can't tell me I just didn't say anything because you didn't have anything to say before. You know, So uh, that training was really something that I, I feel, and I remember my reactions to some of this um, when I, my early years, and I felt like this is so, um, it would seem so mundane, so technical, so uninspiring, so dry. Um, and the appreciation of it had to grow on me, the approach to taking what we call pshat, really not trying to philosophize about Rashi and not trying to you know, come up with uh, romantic or sweeping ideas, but just simply, well, what is Rashi really saying? What was Avraham really thinking? What was Sarah really thinking? What kind of conversation are they having? What did he say? What did she say? And it seems so mundane, but then when you walk away, you say, wow, you know, and that approach takes a lot of time to study, and it's a real body of wisdom. So that's really my very long answer to your very short question, is that um, really this is what I was taught. And I finally kind of, I guess, came around to understand it after many years. That, And uh, not that this is the only approach, but that the approach that I was trained in was an approach which says that Worcester has to be approached like Talmud. It's got to be uh, with a very strong emphasis on the fact that there are real ideas here that require a lot of intellectual study. It's not just simple stuff. There's training and there's analysis, and the same way you wouldn't think that you can understand uh, the laws of kashrus or a complicated monetary law without really studying it, or, or in a secular subject way, you know, becoming a doctor without a lot of study, most are also um, it's a sophisticated subject, and it should be understood to be a sophisticated subject. And it, for third graders, he, he emphasizes as well, it doesn't matter if it's a first grader, a third grader, or a fifth grader, you know, learning and understanding takes place on every level. There should never be learning that doesn't involve thinking, doesn't involve questioning and answering. It should never be rote learning. It should never just be 
passing on information. There should always be analysis. So this can happen on any level, but it's always got to be real learning, not just inspiration, not just role modeling, but really understanding there is wisdom being taught here. There's total wisdom. I definitely agree with that. Do you think that coming from that approach with really diving in and using the Musser approach is more likely to keep students involved, keep them learning, keep them Jewish? Yes, because what you know, we were taught was that the reason Musser is so difficult to perpetuate and the reason it's sort of not so popular is that people don't find it intellectually stimulating and they don't really find it interesting. Mm. So the idea is that when you engage people, you know, questions and answers, everybody, if you present them the right way, everyone is interested. You know, you give somebody a riddle or a problem. You know, some people don't like intellectual problems. Some people do, but if you really engage someone, everyone likes to figure out a puzzle. Everyone likes to that aha of understanding something. And if you present Musser in that way, you just have to figure out how to do it on the appropriate level for that student, which is always a challenge of education. But once you do that, you've engaged the person. The first way to engage them is intellectually, and then you can uh, try, you know, that's the sort of the first step. If if they find it intellectually engaging, then over time it will sink in emotionally. But, uh, you know, you have to first interest them. Like all learning, you know, it starts with just information, and they can filter down to behavior, but that's got to be the first step. Definitely makes sense. Now, how do you talk about God and how might this differ with the various age groups that you work with? So, well, I can tell you one story that comes to mind. <laughs> I heard this, um, actually not from my Rosh Hashim himself, but this is a story about his father. His father, who was an actual uh, close personal student of the altar of Slabanka. Wow. Uh, so, his, um, so a... a Personally, you know, the Roshiva's father was Rabbi David Levi with some blessed memory, and he founded the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva in 1933. He passed away in 1941, so it was a short period of time. So one of the students from that period, uh, years later, reminisced, and he said, you know, we once asked our teacher, Rabbi Levi, why is it that when you speak about Musa, you often speak about interpersonal relationships, and you give specific examples from real-life situations, and you, when you speak about Hashem, you really don't get into it much or it's very abstract and you know like it's you really it's you much go much lighter on the subject so he said look you know we all know the golden rule don't do unto others as you have them do unto you and yes. we see our friends in front of us in the flesh and we know exactly what they want but it's so hard for us to actually follow the golden rule right we, you know, we have such a hard time so if we can't do that how are we going to talk about loving hashem and fearing hashem but you know it's kind of silly wow if we can master mm-hmm this kind of behavior with people who are right in front of us that we can see and, and touch, and, um, then we can move on. So it, it was a kind of realistic, and the Musser approach, um, again, that's a hallmark of, you know, back to our the emphasis on the interpersonal, kind of a gateway into relating to Hashem. And really, you know, man is created in the image of God. So what we know about Hashem is kind of by analogy, by seeing what Hashem does, and we can't really envision Hashem. So uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story about myself. Um, uh, but uh, I, I think it's okay. I was speaking to a gentleman who is you know, identified as a conservative Jew, a very nice, fine fellow. He's been coming to you know, Israel or people affiliated with Israel for many years to study, and he got introduced to me, and I kind of picked up where he, you know, where he was up to. And you know, we met and studied a number of times, 
So he told me about a conversation that we had. He sort of repeated it back to me, and it was interesting to me how he picked up on this. I told him when I had started tutoring a young boy in a neighboring community. It was just they found a website. They called up and asked for a tutor. So I started tutoring this boy. He was uh, junior high school age, I think. We were studying whatever we were studying. So this gentleman said, you know, I asked you, he tells me, I asked you about your relationship with this boy that you're tutoring. Did you begin by kind of discussing with him his beliefs about God or about Judaism and you know, where he is philosophically and religiously? And, and he said, and then he told me what that my response really stuck with him. That, that I'm telling the story because I don't know if I thought much of it at the time, but interesting to see how something you say can resonate with a person. So apparently, so what I told him in response was, and they say, no, I didn't because um, it happens to be the boy was involved in the issue at the time anyways. But I said, well, look, you know, I know what I know. I know what I believe. And I'm just going to tell it to him because it's true. And, you know, he'll accept it or he won't accept it. But I don't really need to assess his personal beliefs. I just have to tell him what I feel is the truth. So, you know, I think, um, again, this this gentleman, Susan, you know, in his uh, 60s, I guess, he felt that that answer was really eye-opening to him. But I think it's true. I think it reflects what I've heard from my teachers. And I think it reflects what I've read in, in Jewish sources that they never really feel uh, a need to apologize or justify believing. You know, they just take it as a fact or that the Torah is true. The things that today sometimes we feel a need to kind of justify, they don't feel a need to justify it. They say, this is what we believe. Uh, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, it's okay. I think when you're really confident about something, now, yeah, I don't know if this is really uh, what you were asking me, but it's something that came to mind and something which I feel is important. So I guess I'm taking the liberty to uh, bring that in and answer to your question. I think Go for uh, it. a lot of when people talk about God, it's really about their questions about God. Um, and I think a lot of the questions are really the personal struggles that we go through. Like, Definitely. Why bad things happen to good people, which is one of the oldest questions in the world. Um, but that's really what it is. You know, when when we're in a good place, I, I read uh, Rabbi Emanuel Feldman writes in one of his books, he said, you know, some of the most profound um, duties of a rabbi are your weddings and funerals. But he likes weddings much better. Nobody asks hard theological questions at a wedding. Nobody <laughs> says, well, why me? You know, why do I deserve this happiness? You know, that's uh, that's what it is. When we're in a good place, when when the world seems like a good place, Somehow we're very comfortable with the idea of God, but when, when, uh, as all too often we're not, that's when the struggles take place. And what we really need is not so much to explain God, but really it's to understand, uh, to have a Torah approach. So again, it gets back to Musser, but to understand how a person, um, you know, can process these things. And again, yeah, that's true, I think, at any age. You know, we don't really ever understand God. So, um, what we really need to focus on is our own behavior vis-a-vis God. So, you know, through prayer uh, is the way we'll, we most directly speak to God. And you know, I would probably you know, teach, if I wanted to teach about, you know, what we say about God, I would probably look to the prayers and say, this is what, you know, again, this is, it can be age appropriate because a child prays at a very young age, but of course they understand the prayers differently. Um, depending on where they are. I did read something interesting once in a 
and a 20th century author, a young great Musser teacher, not someone from my immediate tradition, but he wrote that one shouldn't focus too much on praying on the real meaning of the word. Unlike Talmud study, where we try to get the real meaning, if you read certain words and they speak to you a certain way, the point is to generate the right emotions. Then I get that, I think, educationally, you know, young children, if you teach them the based on what the words mean, but you don't uh, sort of force too much on them, let them let them grow with the words as they get older, um, they'll interpret it, they'll function on their own level. They won't understand certain concepts like restore our justices like the earlier days. I mean, that means so much to them. So look, right. at some point in their life, it may uh, hit them in a different way. But even from one day to the next or from the morning to the evening, we might, you know, say a chakras and feel hopeful and feel that the modem really speaks to our emotions of Thanksgiving. And then by the afternoon, going through the work day, we might feel like we need a restoration restoration of justice as an order, you know, or save us from our troubles might be the thing that really uh, most important to us then. So I think that those things are very, um, again, it's not, even so, it's not even so much the age, but it's the, the moment to moment. That's what prayer is all about. Definitely. I agree with that. I don't know if I answered your question, but those are some <laughs> thoughts that came to mind after you asked it. So I hope that will be acceptable. I think so. Um, I think it also ties in a little bit with this next question. I know you touched on this a little bit already, but we kind of think of uh, education or chinuch as a little bit of an amorphous term. How would you define education? So I did touch on this a little. This is something that was very important also in the Chafetz Chaim. Yeshiva, and I think, I think it is something which the yeshiva certainly distinguishes itself in their approach. And this is known almost uh, even with people outside the yeshiva how their the Talmud classes on an advanced level are so interactive at to the point, even this summer, we had this two-week uh, mini summer camp, but we had a few teenagers um, that we hosted in the community. And, you know, I gave a little class for a few, you know, for just for the duration of those two weeks. And there were also one or two visiting people in the community who also came. You know, there were yeshiva students at different levels. And one of them said, I remember this was the first day, like, it was always like this. It was just the whole class is a conversation. And what the idea was very um, profound. And the yeshiva said this from the very first days as a teacher in the early 40s. He said, he prepared very, you know, he was very nervous. He was, he was young. His father had died at a young age. He suddenly had this job, and he prepared and prepared and prepared. And after a few days, he said, "I got to quit. I, this is terrible." I, I, you know, the, he was so well prepared that he wasn't, you know, he was getting nothing out of the teaching. And then he, wow. you know, one day he said, "All of a sudden, well, after a few days or something, like a new idea popped into his head during the class, and that was like the beginning of it, of his whole teaching career opening up." And what he he realized was. I'm sure he didn't just realize that then, I'm sure it was part of his education as well, was that, you know, if a teacher is just going to be a better researcher, you know, bring in material that you haven't had a chance to read yet, you know, sooner or later you'll, you'll get, you'll grow up and you'll read it yourself. Why, what do you really need a teacher for? You know, so when you're young, you don't need, you don't know how to read. You have to have a teacher. But at a certain point, and he said it's, it's an even bigger problem if a student is Israeli because then you don't even need to know the language. You learn it anyway. So what is the teacher really doing? You know, Hebrew you already know. You know, at a certain point, you can basically decipher the words. So he says, really, real teaching is by definition when you already have the material in advance or 
you know, at least in concept, you have access to the same material. You read it and the teacher reads it. You compare notes and you see how the teacher was approaching it differently. And you have to then fight to defend your ground because it's just like, oh, the teacher read it more carefully and I made a mistake again. You haven't really learned anything. It's just the teacher was less sloppy than you. And next time you'll be a little bit more careful, but really you haven't learned anything. But when you really have gone through it thoroughly and tried hard and look, studied it a certain way and then you get into the classroom and the teacher is clearly reading it differently and you're like, what's going on? And you go back and forth and it gets really confusing and no one knows what's going on and everyone is shouting and it's chaotic. But then later or the next day you go back and you say, wait, so I came in and I read it this way and he came in and read it that way. And you start piecing it and then all of a sudden you say, oh, oh, I get it. And all of a sudden you've seen something and you have to, you know, sometimes it takes a while because if the process is really working, what it's going to do is it's going to stretch your understanding. You're going to learn something new that you never would have figured out on your own. And that's where teaching really yeah. takes place. So you need to reach a level where the student is capable of, you know, it always has to start with a student who's thinking because if the student's not thinking, we're not trying on their own and they're not really learning anything. They're just passive. They have to be actively um, looking at the material, drawing their conclusions, then comparing notes with the teacher you know, fighting it out, and then at the end, they have to step up and say, you know what, the teacher really is right, and really understands it better. And that's where teaching takes place. So you have to try to get to that point, which is very difficult. It is. It and, really is. But that's where real, really, real education takes place, and that, that's really the only way. Well, I really, I like that answer, and I'm sure all of us could do a better job at, at doing that as educators. What has been your biggest challenge as an educator? Well, that that certainly is a challenge, uh, you know, as much as I can say it, but uh, to remember to do it is not easy. It's much easier to fall into the lecture or let me tell you how it is kind of mode. Um, and it takes much more work to kind of um, share less and put the student more in the driver's seat and try to get them to sort of take ownership of the process in that way. Um, you know, I, I'm in a, I'm not really in a school setting, so I must say that Long Island, one of the big problems is getting people to show up because, you know, in today's world, you're dealing with, uh, sort of non-mandatory education, not in a school setting, you're dealing with people who have lives, you know, to whatever degree or another, they're busy. How do you engage people? And, uh, you know, again, part of the challenge is we have so much today. And this is true in a school setting, this, we're competing with so much for attention, for interest, and um, gets worse and worse than it used to be. Again, even for adults, you can announce a class in a community and people, oh, that's an evening, something to do. Everyone has conflicts today, multiple conflicts, and the digital, the access to digital things. And I know myself, you know, I don't go to classes. If I want to look something up, I Google it. So to take an hour of your time to sit. And again, it's a sort of a technical problem, but it's also a fundamental problem because this, I, the real education, um, you know, really to sit down, to clear your mind, to focus, to think is very hard. And, uh, it, you know, so all of these things are both you know, situational things, but also, again, you know, real education is not glamorous. That's what the would told us. He said, it's boring. He says, uh, you know, people, and he said this in terms of outreach to, to adults. He said, people think you got to give people gimmicks and uh, attention getting things. And you do need that to get people in the door. But he says, Give them Chumash and Rashi's if you feed people just um, sort of interesting and exciting things or gimmicky things. 
last. The, the first challenge that comes, the right. first uh, crisis, they're just going to lose everything. But Chomish and Rashi, that's boring and tedious. So who's going to spend time? Uh, but you know, that's really the way to build people on any level, you know, to do uh, the old hard way. And, and that's really a challenge to make that interesting and to make people want to sit there and grinding through so much of it is technical. You know, so much of it is tedious, but that's the way to get to the real understanding. And if you're not willing to do it the old hard way, there are some things you can't take shortcuts on, and learning is one of them. It's true. It's definitely true. What advice would you give to new educators who are just beginning their journey? Good question. You know, it is challenging to maintain your idealism. Um, one of the challenges is, that on the one hand, you know, we were always taught that an educator cannot has to be completely selfless you cannot enter education with any desire to you know for personal benefit and i don't just mean for money but uh you're entitled to earn a living but it can't be because um, and although the rabbis tell us that you gain the most from teaching i learned much from my teachers more from my friends and from my students most of all but you can't enter education for that purpose although some people do unfortunately but that's wrong you can't say i'm here because you know, the best way for me to advance in my intellectual development is to get a teaching position. Uh-huh. It's a terrible thing. And the, so you have to know that it's true. And if the bottom, without that stimulation, the teacher will become stale and frustrated. So it's very tricky. Uh, you know, I think a teacher starting out has to understand that on the one end, your, your learning is done. You have to focus on your students. But if it's just about um, now I have a teaching career, and my mind is closed, you're going to run out of idealism very quickly and get burned out. So you have to appreciate the opportunity to grow and become deeper, but not because you're doing it for yourself, but because the teaching process is the ultimate growth. But, you know, again, it's a, a kind of a tricky balancing act where, you know, your growth is just beginning in a certain sense, although your growth is officially ended but it's also just beginning and you have to look at this as a journey that you're taking for the benefit of these students but that you are also along for the ride and you're going to gain if you approach it that way then you can stay fresh and you can become you can stay vital i think that's great advice and another question that you um, did kind of touch on uh, previously but especially for new teachers coming in how do you think we can help our students really build a proper torah foundation so again, I'm going to say the answer is Musser. But uh, the idea is that um, Musser is, and this is something also very important, it really is a source of strength. Uh, I'll tell you a story. This is an old story about Rabbi Shah Salanter. It's one of the stories that's given as one of the impetuses for him to start the Musser movement was that there was a poor person, a tailor, a shoemaker, who inherited some money or something and became wealthy. And uh, the other, you know, sort of old... Uh, upper-class wealthy people kind of resented the fact that this per- this simple lower-class person that joined their circle. So one day, this uh, you know formerly poor, now rich uh, shoemaker made a wedding and married off a child. So one of the older rich people uh, and made some kind of joke, like he held up his shoe and said, can you mend my shoe for me or something? And the poor shoemaker, uh, you know, uh, fainted and embarrassed. The story was something of, of that nature. Rabbi says, what a terrible thing. And, you know, that was one of the things that sort of moved him to start the Muslim movement. But the comment on this I heard was fascinating. I heard a lecture or quote someone, I don't know who exactly who he was quoting. The person said that Rabbi Salanter didn't start the Muslim movement because 
these people did such a terrible thing. They insulted this person and we need to teach them. So that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story was, why did this shoemaker suffer, you know, collapse from embarrassment? Musser would give the victim a greater strength to deal with it. That was, I thought, a fascinating comment. So what, you, know, you think of the story as, oh, well, people have to be kind and not cruel and insulting. That's true. But it's also, Musser is what gives the person the strength to deal with the challenges of life. It gives a person a foundation. 100%. Because again, if, and if you think about the approach, you know, as an intellectual subject, Musser has real ideas. And, and I feel this after many years. It took a long time. But um, I remember the Roshiva saying, you know what, you know, again, this is a lecture I heard in a recording, but he was talking to his own students and he said, you know what it means to be able to open a Chumash and see something and say, here, right here. And you know what a source of strength that it's really true when you can show students how, you know, and I think the way, probably the way I thought of it as a young person, you know, we have Chumash and Halacha and Gemara, and we have a Hashdafa or most of these ideas, Jewish ideas, Jewish values, but it's not that way. When you teach Moser properly, that a student understands, just like you can open up the Mishtabura and say, well, I'm allowed to put this pot on the blech on, you know, on Shabbos because of X, Y, and Z, it says it right here. You give the student the ability to open up a Chumash and say, I know this is the right way to react in this situation because this is what it says right here. You know, in concept, that's what you're doing. And that is tremendously grounding for a person. It's tremendously reassuring to feel like it's not just Jewish values because my great aunt and my great uncle, and the, you know, but because we know we're very much rooted. This, these are Torah ideas. These aren't just all the Jewish people do it this way because that's that's part of our culture. But it's, I learned the Chumash. I learned Bereshish, Shmos, Mayikra, and these ideas come straight from the Torah. That's really the solid foundation. It's showing people how not, none of this is made up. None of this is just because, or just because it's our, you know, it's the way it's always been done, but it, it all links, it's all branches on the same tree. And I think that's really where the power comes from. I agree. It makes it relevant for sure. What does successful Jewish education look like in the future? I'll use another idea. You know, I was taught the idea of a, the teacher used the word a self-starter. What you really want, you know, I don't think that we can ever say that we need um, to produce this kind of person because that always changes, you know, what kind of person uh, depends on the person's nature, their circumstances. But one thing you can say is that you want a person will be like the, you know, the metaphor of the candle flame that when you light, the Torah uses the metaphor, but they apply it to education. You kindle the flame, and when you pull away the candle and the flame burns on its own, then you successfully kindle the flame. You need students who have something that can stand alone. You know, there are people who went through the Holocaust or the Soviet Union, and, you know, amazingly, there were people who went through those things and came out, and they still held on to what they were taught. That can only happen if it exists, if the person carries it on their own. You know, you can't. You can have a person living in the middle of a, a Jewish community and doing everything right and, you know, following the rules, and that's fine. But drop that person in another setting, uh, it's not going to last. But if you created the, uh, again, getting back to, gets back to Musa, if you people really understand the roots of what they're being taught, they understand the concepts, and they see how what we do comes from what we're taught, and they understand it internally, they will be able to take that with them. And if they're dropped in the middle of, you know, thank God we're not likely to end up in the Soviet Union or the Holocaust, God forbid. But, you know, if they end up stuck on a plane or in another country or uh, in a hospital or whatever it is, 
they will be able to use those same principles because they've got the core. And that's all we need. We need people who will have that core and understand it thoroughly. They may not be the biggest geniuses or the biggest rabbis, but no, this is what I was taught. This is what I know. These are the values. They're rooted in the Torah. And I can apply them in the way, you know, I can ask the things that I don't know, but here's what I do know. And these values are clear and solid to me, and I don't have any questions about them. I think that's what successful Jewish education is. Well, I like it. Hopefully uh, we can take that and some of our other listeners will be able to take that and make a difference in this education world so that we will continue to be around. Yes, certainly. Definitely a challenge. We're going to be around, but we have to, you know, as though it really is up to us. Not really, but that's our job is to plan, you know, to be the ones to carry it forward. So we have to feel like it's all resting on our shoulders. Definitely. I like what you said about one candle lighting another candle and, that's if we can even touch one other life and inspire them to want to continue learning and being Jewish, then I'd say that's a success. Of course. Right. <laughs> well, Rabbi Grossman, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on our podcast. And we learned so much and we look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. It was an honor. And I hope that this project is very successful and you get a lot of a lot of good material to share with people so everyone can learn from each other we all have something to contribute and thank you for the opportunity to uh, say my piece amen it's real it's our pleasure and wishing you all the best much appreciated